Welcome to our continuing 2019 educational webinar series. I'm Katherine Short, Partnership Marketing Manager for First Healthcare Compliance. At First Healthcare Compliance, we help you with a comprehensive compliance management solution tailored to your business. A hospital, hospital network, healthcare practice of any size, billing company, or skilled nursing facility. As part of our complimentary educational webinar series, we bring you experts from around the country to discuss relevant topics in the healthcare industry. We are so pleased to have Katherine Walters, a management side labor and employment attorney representing employers of all sizes, including privately and publicly held companies, federal and state government contractors, institutions of higher education, trade associations, and other nonprofits. Industries served include financial and banking, manufacturing, defense contracting, education, healthcare, professional services, insurance, construction, technology, retail, real estate, transportation, restaurant, and hospitality. Catherine partners with clients to develop creative, practical, business-oriented solutions, and she focuses on identifying current and emerging trends to assist clients with managing and preventing emerging risks. Emphasizing strategic thinking and focused solutions, Catherine provides employers with sophisticated counsel that has become necessary in today's complex business environment. She appears before federal and state courts and administrative agencies and currently as a, is a partner at Bible Rutledge LLP. A copy of the slides is available for download on the control panel. Feel free to submit questions into the question box on your control panel during the presentation. We will address questions at the conclusion of the presentation. Your PACOM and PMI CEU certificates will, will be emailed to you following the broadcast. Your PACOM certificate will come directly from PACOM and your PMI certificate will come from our email. There is no need to request either one. Additional CEU opportunities will be available to BC Advantage members following the live broadcast. See their website for details. A download of the handout is available with a button on the bottom right-hand side of your screen. Catherine, a warm welcome. Thank you so much, Catherine. And hello, everybody out there. Thank you for joining us today for our discussion about background checks. In recent years, Employers have faced waves and waves of class action lawsuits relevant to background checks, and many of these include technical violations under the Fair Credit Reporting Act. These cases um, have not necessarily resulted in what is considered to be concrete injury to the individual members of classes. However, because they are specific technical violations of the law, uh, employers have determined to settle these cases rather than go through extended litigation. And I'll discuss some of these cases as we dis discuss the Fair Credit Reporting Act a little bit later. Um, however, these settlements have been in the millions and they really deal in many cases with the concept of, quote, extraneous information, closed quote, in the disclosure notifications. So we'll talk about how to uh, attempt to avoid such things. So getting back to our discussion, um, today we have a highly electronic and social media oriented society, 
And people are starting to value the privacy that they've already given up via their use of social media. In addition, they are getting a little tired of the privacy incursions that are otherwise made available via massive and numerous databases that contain people's amazing, amazing amounts of people's criminal history, credit history, and other considerations. In addition, we are transforming into more of a gig economy with a growing contingent workforce. Employee, employers are realizing that contingent workers should go through the same screens as regular employees and that these screens should be complete before the employee is actually permitted to begin working. With respect to healthcare organizations, they do have a number of special obligations that may go above and beyond some regular employers in the private sector, although numerous types of employers in the private sector have specific requirements. Healthcare organizations, though, have special obligations stemming from the concept of life and death stakes that could be involved, the concept of vulnerable patients. They might be vulnerable to theft or abuse or other forms of uh, uh, abuse by potential healthcare workers. Um, access to controlled substances is typically an issue. And of course, the potential to commit fraud, whether in billing, whether in resume fraud, and so forth. So we're going to hear a lot about what an employer cannot do as part of its investigation into a candidate's suitability for employment. However, I want to remind you that there are typically exceptions to many of these prohibitions, depending on the industry, the type or level of employee being reviewed, and the actual job position itself. Um, some of these types of exceptions will tend to relate towards medical professionals, um, financial professionals, and security or high-level security professionals. It's important to understand that each law applies to your background check needs um, in different ways. And so besides the Fair Credit Reporting Act uh, and some of the equal employment opportunity issues, you will encounter numerous state and local laws. So it's important for you to understand each law that applies to your background check needs including those exclusions and exemptions. Even if you use a reputable screening service, you as an employer still mu must still abide by obligations that are placed on employers by the Fair Credit Reporting Act and a number of the other laws involved. Um, a little bit more, though, about um, some of the best background check practices in healthcare. We're uh, going to go through today's agenda, but I wanted to add this right on top so that you're thinking about some of these issues as we walk through these statutes and some of their impact on you. In essence, as I said, it's important for healthcare providers to engage in background checking because many, many patients are in extremely vulnerable states when they're being cared for. They can be easy targets for thieves or abusers. And indeed, healthcare employees often work with controlled substances. Uh, so drug addiction can be another major concern. Beyond that, we often run into um, resume fraud. And of course, uh, we deal with the concept of individuals who have been accepted or excluded from working with specific government entities or government programs such as Medicare or Medicaid. So it's important to take your time 
establish and create best practices for your organization. Your background check policies are going to vary from one organization to the next, depending on the type of care that you provide. But in most cases, you should consider some practices um, as part of your healthcare organization screening policy. These would include the use of license verifications uh, with respect to doctors and nurses and other healthcare workers who might be required to hold licenses in the state where they wish to work um, and who otherwise would be required to have licenses uh, commensurate with their, their skills and background. You can eliminate a lot of liability by verifying that your candidates hold valid licenses and are considered in good standing by their respective state licensing boards. Another thing to consider um, is verification of education. And I, I do want to digress just a little bit. These guidelines, um, the concept of verifying licenses, verifying education, and verifying some of the other aspects of the background check do apply across the board to employers. Maybe not every element will apply to them depending on their different needs. However, for the most part, um, I think we can, uh, we can extend these concepts across the board. So as I was saying, it's important to verify education um, to ensure that you're hiring an individual who is what he or she says he or she is. Um, you can reach out to medical schools, universities, or colleges to verify education history, and that way you can confirm that the educational level that has been presented to you is accurate. Um, running identity verifications into alias searches is also important. Um, indeed, you can find some kind of red flags by running aliases uh, on individuals to ensure that they haven't hidden something by using a different name. Um, if you are comprehensive with your criminal checks, you're going to actually be running um, criminal checks on many different databases. Unfortunately, there is no national database of criminal history information, and you have to review multiple sources to get a full picture of an individual's past. So we typically would start at the county level and then potentially move up to the state repositories and then some multi-jurisdictional databases to expand the search. Uh, address histories, excuse me, address histories might also be useful with respect to county criminal checks because typically um, crimes are committed where people live. So it's important to think about doing criminal background checks at many different levels. Look at disciplinary databases if they're available. Um, for example, healthcare professionals who have been disciplined by a state board can be risky hires. It's not to say that all of them are, but they might be, and it's good for you to know about them ahead of time. As a result, it's good to look for disciplinary databases if they are available. Check your health inclusion lists. In essence, disciplinary actions from state boards aren't necessarily the only sanctions that doctors and nurses can face. Government departments and agencies will often exclude medical professionals from participating in programs like Medicare and Medicaid or otherwise sanction them in different ways. It's important to take a look at some of these lists for example, the list of excluded individuals, entities that is maintained by the Office of Inspector General. Other things that you can do are run drug tests. Again, we're looking for substance abuse in situations like that. 
and healthcare workers typically have easy access to addictive substances, and as a result, this type of screening can be very important. Finally, I would suggest that you do reach out to previous employers. It's important to verify that an applicant is telling the truth on their resume, and then often a former employer who is willing to speak to you might help you uncover issues about an applicant that you would not otherwise learn. It's important to remember that when we seek reference checks, of course, I'm sure most of you have run into the problem that an employer is saying that we have a neutral recommendation or a neutral reference policy, and they'll only give you name, rank, and serial number. However, it's important to remember that to avoid defamation, all you have to do is tell the truth. And so a number of states actually have statutes that protect former employers who provide truthful references. As a result, if you are asked whether you would rehire the individual, your answer can be yes. If you are asked why, you would state why. You wouldn't embellish. You wouldn't uh, create. You would simply state the truth and the reasons for the termination. I know that this is a little bit um, lacking in conservatism for a lot of employers. They still prefer that neutral reference policy. But uh, in essence, you are allowed to tell the truth so long as you don't embellish it or create layers of untruth on top of it. And you should be able to, and you will avoid defamation actions, particularly in states that have the, the reference provider statutes that protect them. All right. so. Let's talk about today's agenda, and the question is, why use background checks? We're definitely going to get into some of the reasons to use those background checks. And in essence, we'll talk today, too, about what laws apply. I'll spend time on the Fair Credit Reporting Act, as well as discrimination considerations and the EEOC's guidance on consideration of arrests and convictions. And then I'll talk about various state and local laws that include ban-the-box type laws, uh, prohibitions on credit history information, and prohibitions on salary history. And then we're going to move into some best practices for employers. So why should an employer use background checks? Well, there are some advantages to using background checks. In addition to being required by law in some cases, or being customary in particular industries, it can actually be um, a best practice for employers who are seeking information to determine whether they are hiring and retaining the best candidates for available positions. Um, and many employers, in particular uh, employers that are focused on their workplace culture, are going to focus on improving their workplace culture and stability by identifying, hiring, and attempting to retain candidates who reflect the values of the company and who will enhance their workforce. So in essence, some other reasons to use background checks would include the reduction of potential exposure to litigation. Now, I don't want to get into a lot of legal terms here. Um, the concept of vicarious liability, which is often referred to as respondeat superior, means that an employee has acted within the scope of his or her job duties for the employer's business purposes, and in instances where that individual actually um, engages in negligence or creates um, damage to person or property, the employer can be liable for that type of damage. 
um, other forms of uh, reduction, other forms of exposure for employers include the concepts of negligent hiring, negligent supervision, or negligent retention. In essence, an employee who acts outside the scope of his or her employment um, will defeat the concept of vicarious liability as to an employer, but in many cases, an employer knew about an individual's propensity to engage in such behaviors or should have known that that employee would pose a risk of harm to others by having done background checks or perhaps having observed the individual while they were engaged in supervising that person or perhaps um, having retained that individual despite having made multiple errors of the same type that then ended up hurting somebody in the public. Um, again, these are the kinds of things that employers either knew or should have known had they taken appropriate and reasonable action, but they took no preventive action to prevent that individual from engaging in that behavior and otherwise hurting others. Um, it, the other thing that we use background checks for would be to the re, reduce the risk of employee theft and other honesty crimes. So, for example, uh, a bank wants to reduce somebody who might be have a propensity for embezzlement because they have a history of uh, stealing or embezzling or otherwise um, being convicted of theft crimes. Uh, we look at inventory theft, theft from coworkers, um, things that are really important such as theft of intellectual property and theft of trade secrets and proprietary information. These are things that people actually steal from their employers and either sell or use on behalf of their new employers or themselves. And of course, we always consider fraud. Uh, fraud comes in many shapes and forms and ultimately can create massive liability for an employer. Um, and even if it's not liability to an employer, it can create massive losses to that employer. Other reasons to use background checks include reducing the risk of potential workplace violence. Uh, workplace violence um, has become more and more prevalent in our society. Uh, it's an unfortunate uh, fact, but it is happening. And in essence, we look for people that may have had certain types of convictions or restraining orders or other types of violent um, behaviors attributed to them. There are other types of things that can create violence in the workplace. And as a result, we would typically screen for issues relating to somebody that might ultimately end up engaging in a violent type of behavior, whether it's against an individual, whether it's against women, whether it's against men, or whether it's a general type of anger uh, situation. Um, we also uh, try to avoid health and safety violations because under OSHA, uh, all employers are required to provide a workplace that is free from recognized hazards that are likely to or do cause death or other serious harm. And workplace violence actually falls within the scope of that hazard. It's a general violation under OSHA, but it's one that you might be able to avoid with appropriate background checking. Another use is to confirm, as I said earlier, confirm the accuracy of credentials, such as academic and professional credentials, to detect resume fraud and potential errors on the resume, to reduce the risk of noncompliance with immigration law, uh, in essence, employers are not permitted to hire individuals who are not authorized to work in the United States. And if they do, and if uh, they are found out, then employers are typically 
fined and penalized for such behaviors, and these can lead to even more serious situations such as audits of your workforce and your record keeping and the potential to identify additional individuals who are not authorized to work. So all of these reasons actually um, work in favor of performing background checks. Of course, there are employers who don't see the point. They believe that uh, performing background checks is simply an expense that they don't need to undertake and that they uh, really don't get a tremendous amount of benefit from, mainly because it's a high turnover type of uh, work or perhaps the, the jobs involved don't really require uh, a careful analysis of an individual's background and so forth. But I suspect that uh, those of you on the call today um, do believe that background checks are necessary, so we'll continue. Um, the primary law that employers run into with respect to background check is the Fair Credit Reporting Act. I'm going to refer to the Fair Credit Reporting Act as FCRA going forward. The FCRA is really a consumer protection law that applies to the use of third-party service providers who obtain background information on applicants and existing employees and then provide that information to the requester, or in this case, the employer. So again, it's a consumer protection law. It was enacted to promote accuracy and regulate the collection and reporting of an individual consumer's personal information for credit, employment, insurance, and other purposes. And in essence, the FCRA applies only to the use of third-party service providers to obtain this background information. Um, when we talk about those, we refer to them as consumer reporting agencies. Many employers do not go outside of their organization to do their own background checks. They perform their background checks internally. They have staff devoted to that task. Um, and in smaller individual organization cases, perhaps that individual is overwhelmed <laughs> with uh, performing background checks as well as all the other human resources aspects of their job. But either way, employers who keep their background checking in-house and don't use third-party providers like consumer reporting agencies um, typically are not governed by the FCRA. However, it is useful if you are going to do a background check to still disclose to the, uh, the applicant that you will be looking into their background and their references. Again, a much more simplified approach than moving forward under the FCRA. In essence, though, consumer reporting agencies, or CRAs, are entities that regularly gather or evaluate information about individuals, and they provide reports to others. Some of these could include credit bureaus, private investigators, detective agencies, collective agencies, and then we also see internet and social media background screening services. The focus really is on the exchange of information about people, consumers, and this includes information used in making employment decisions such as hiring, retention, promotion, reassignment, and ultimately termination. So when we deal with the Fair Credit Reporting Act, we focus on the concept of different types of reports. 
Um, most employers use consumer reports. There is also something called the investigative consumer report, which I'll deal with in a moment. But a consumer report typically includes information about a person's credit, character, reputation, lifestyle, personal attributes, family, criminal records, driver information, and other similar information. The report is typically in written format, but oral communication of information can also be considered a consumer report. And these contents of consumer reports can be limited under certain circumstances. In essence, um, an employer that requests consumer reports for employment purposes related to jobs that pay less than $75,000 are not allowed to access information such as Chapter 11 bankruptcies that are more than 10 years old or civil lawsuits, civil judgments, and arrest records that are more than seven years old or until the statute of limitations expire if that time period might have been longer. Um, can't access paid tax liens that are more than seven years old, can't access delinquent accounts that are more than seven years old, except for perhaps government-sponsored student loans, which are, which are subject to longer periods, and then other adverse information beyond criminal convictions that is more than seven years old. So in essence, the law uses the $75,000 mark as its bright line with respect to whether employers can obtain some of the information that I've just mentioned. There is no time limit for reporting information on criminal convictions as opposed to criminal arrests. The seven-year limit for reporting non-bankruptcy items of adverse information doesn't apply to neutral records such as educational and employment records. So as a result, you can obtain educational and employment records that are older than seven years old. Now, I mentioned earlier the investigative consumer report, and these are consumer reports that include personal interviews about the individual with neighbors, associates, acquaintances, and others who may have additional knowledge about the individual. It's um, really focused on character, habits, practices, what people's opinions are, how that individual appears to present him or herself in the community, and so forth. Consumer reports and investigative consumer reports regarding both applicants for employment and current employees are going to be regulated by the FCRA. And um, I want to point out something with respect to independent contractors. Um, independent contractors are often um, determined not to actually be regulated by the FCRA, but I want to suggest to you that they are um, for now. There has been a great deal of case law that deals with the independent contractors. And in essence, um, some cases do say that it doesn't, but one or two cases does not make law. And so my perspective on this is that uh, the concept of, quote, employment purposes, um, as it is defined by the FCRA, which is a report used for the purpose of evaluating a consumer or employment promotion reassignment or retention as an employee um, actually causes some confusion. In essence, the concept of whether an independent contractor is an employee or not makes it unclear for employers as to whether they should conduct background checks with respect to independent contractors. Um, my perspective on this is that um, it's unclear and that I would say 
apply background check laws under the FCRA requirements to independent contractors. Assume that the FCRA applies until it doesn't, meaning assume that it applies until we receive some pronouncement, whether from the Federal Trade Commission or the courts, that the FCRA does not apply to independent contractors. With respect to employers who use CRAs, um, we basically determine that employers who use them are governed by a specific notice, disclosure, and consent requirement. Um, these arise when you are obtaining the reports and also taking adverse employment action because of information in the reports. So in the context of a consumer report, including an investigative consumer report, the concept of employment purposes means employment, promotion, reassignment, or retention as an employee. On the other hand, if a CRA or a third party is not used and the background check is conducted in-house, then the FCRA is unlikely to apply, as I indicated earlier. Um, simply checking an employee's references without the assistance of a CRA should not subject your company to FCRA requirements. Another issue that comes up is social media, um, and I will address that further along in the presentation, particularly in view of um, not only discrimination, but best practices. Um, so let's assume for now that the FCRA applies, and um, before a background check may be requested then, um, you must provide a clear and conspicuous disclosure in writing that is separate from any other documents, such as the employment application and any related documents, that notifies the employee in writing that a consumer report may be used for employment purposes and that requires the applicant or the employee to provide their written authorization to obtain the consumer report. Now, this is a really important aspect of the FCRA. And the reason why it's so important is because, as I mentioned earlier, we are seeing tons of class actions that are settling for millions of dollars with respect to technical violations of the FCRA. And this is one of those technical violations. What happens is, under the FCRA, um, a standalone disclosure solely consisting of the FCRA notices, notice is required. Many employers, because they eschew the use of paper or they're trying to condense the amount of information on one piece of paper or one screen, they try to wrap other things into these disclosures. And so they will seek um, release of liability against the employer. They will seek um, acknowledgement that the individual uh, will not pursue the employer if they aren't hired because of the background check. And there are all kinds of extraneous things that employers plant in these disclosures. It is not an uncommon practice to do that, but I would warrant to you that you should explore what your specific forms look like and make sure that they don't include extraneous information. You have, there's nothing that prevents you from doing that type of extraneous information extraction from employees as part of the employment application practice. You just need to do it separate from the FCRA disclosures. So for example, um, in January earlier this month, 
Delta agreed to pay $2.3 million to end a worker background check suit simply relating to the fact that the standalone disclosure, which included the FCRA notice as it was supposed to, also included extraneous information. Similarly, um, just last week, um, Walmart workers, 5 million Walmart workers, um, won certiorari in a background check suit for the same reason. In essence, um, they are claiming that Walmart um, added extraneous material to background check notices it issued to applicants and new hires in violation of both the FCRA and California law. Um, here, uh, the, the complainants allege that the company directly asked for applicants' criminal history and sought permission to inquire from other people, schools, companies, and businesses, despite the FCRA's mandate that employers who seek those things must tell applicants via a clear, conspicuous disclosure um, that this is covered by the law. Um, in essence, Walmart allegedly included legal waivers and extraneous information about state laws in its applications. Um, and more importantly, the plaintiffs allege that Walmart acknowledged during a deposition that its forms prior to 2015 were unclear. And as a result, the subclass prior to 2015 appears to be certain. So again, we're looking at large numbers of people who are jumping on board for these technical violation class actions, whether or not they've actually been damaged as a result of these violations. And employers are dealing with this type of um, really expanding class action litigation. So again, well, let me get back to the assumption that the FCRA applies. Step one is provide a clear and conspicuous disclosure. I have somehow gone backwards. Here we go. And then moving forward, assuming that the FCRA applies, your step two is prior to taking any adverse employment action based in whole or in part on a consumer report, the employer has to provide the applicant or the employee with a copy of the consumer report, must provide a summary of the consumer's rights under the FCRA, and must then allow the individual time to dispute the consumer report. As I said earlier, an adverse employment action includes a denial of employment, the rescission of a job offer, the denial of a promotion, or any other decision that might adversely affect a current or prospective employee. So once that individual has been advised that an adverse employment action is likely going to be taken, then the employer must provide written notice containing additional information, that is, that an adverse employment action has indeed been taken, the name and address and phone number of the CRA or other entity that provided that consumer report upon which the employer based the negative action, a statement that the employer made the adverse decision rather than the CRA or entity that supplied the consumer report, and a statement of the individual's right to dispute the accuracy of the information as well as their right to obtain a free consumer report from that agency. So we've got a lot of steps to follow, and I am trying to advance my slide. Okay, let's move forward into the investigative consumer reports. Um, just some additional information about them. Uh, they are more in invasive than a regular consumer report. 
and if they're used for employment purposes, employers are required to take even more additional steps. And in essence, I've included those on the slides, but um, they are a little more specific and a little more uh, constricting. Uh, so in essence, it's important that within three days after a report is requested, the employer must indicate that to the employee um, the type and nature of information that may be sought. Why are you doing this background check? What are you looking for? Again, a synopsis of the individual's rights and notice that the individual can request additional disclosures about the investigative consumer reports nature and scope. So if investigative consumer reports are used for employment purposes, the employer must also certify to the CRA that the employer has made the required uh, disclosures and that the employer will continue to abide by the FCRA requirements. And certainly if the individual requests additional disclosures, the employer must provide written disclosure of the nature and scope of the investigation within five days of that request from the employee or the applicant. All right, with respect to investigations into employee misconduct, this is a little bit different um, area under the FCRA. Um, an employer who uses a CRA report as the basis for taking an adverse employment action must supply the employee with a summary of the report findings. However, the employer doesn't have to reveal the source of the report and can disclose that report after taking adverse action. However, remember, you can't double dip meaning that you cannot use that information for further investigation of the individual's creditworthiness or otherwise share that information with unauthorized parties. What does this mean? Um, this means that if you hire a third party to engage in a workplace investigation, which many employers do, whether it's to investigate sexual harassment allegations or other forms of investigation, um, that outside investigator is likely going to be considered a CRA. However, the law recognizes that if you alert an individual prior to finishing the investigation that they're being investigated, uh, it can have a very different outcome. And as a result, um, this errs more on the side of a personnel action, which is typically protected under the law, um, because we don't want the government to be a superhuman resources agency. Um, but in essence, because an outside investigator has been used, if a report is actually issued, the employer has the right to keep the source of that report secret um, and does not have to disclose that report until after taking adverse action, assuming that the adverse action is actually predicated upon the outcome of the report. So uh, we don't have the same level of FCRA obligation under the concept of a workplace investigation as we do with respect to background investigations of individuals. Um, of course, the FCRA carries numerous penalties with it, statutory damages, punitive damages, damages for negligent violations, which is typically what the uh, <laughs> large class actions are predicated upon, and of course, attorney's fees. Attorney's fees are typically the reason why law firms take on such large class actions because they are a very lucrative payday. Um, some damages really, um, as I said, uh, it's on the rise. The potential for statutory damages per violation and attorney's fees available 
has resulted in an increased focus by class action attorneys, and we've seen numerous lawsuits in recent years that have netted millions in damages on behalf of classes of individuals and their lawyers. So how do employers avoid similar problems? Basically, they take courses like this. They study the Fair Credit Reporting Act. They learn what procedures they need to implement and follow. They develop and implement and follow those procedures by using checklists and other approaches that we'll talk about later, and they apply the rules consistently. So let's move now to discrimination issues. And I don't want to spend a tremendous amount of time on the actual EEOC guidance, but I do have it um, as a large part of this presentation because it does create um, a really strong foundation for employers that are dealing with issues having to do with criminal history and arrests and also the concept of the ban the box. So in essence, when we look at background checks and discrimination, we have to just remind ourselves that there are multiple federal and state anti-discrimination laws that prohibit <laughs> discrimination against the multitude of protected classes. And I've listed a number of these here. And also I note that various federal contractor obligations are overlays to these obligations. And those employers have even more obligations than um, just, let's just call it a regular old private employer in the private sector. Um, another thing that I wanted to talk about is the concept of social media issues and hiring. And social media has become integral to many businesses, especially small and startup businesses. It serves as a primary tool for communication and information gathering by business owners and employees. And many employers today search social media for information about prospective employees, even if not part of the formal hiring process. So this kind of approach to researching a candidate can help employers gather information about a person's education and employment and relevant experience, um, but it also helps them to gather personal information and photos because these things are typically found on social media sites and they may, and in fact many times do, reveal information about an applicant that is going to be beyond the scope of any legal inquiry during an interview. So for example, an employer can glean information about an applicant's membership in or affiliation with certain protected classifications of individuals, including religious affiliations or beliefs, maybe even genetic conditions, sexual orientation, national origin, age, race, and in essence, basically can learn a great deal about an individual from social media, um, and that's a lot of stuff that people aren't supposed to know about as they attempt to make an employment decision based on whether the individual is qualified for the position. So in essence, the law on permissible use of social media during the hiring process is still developing, um, and of course, you know, we're seeing more and more lawsuits regarding that, but some of the ways that employers insulate themselves against these suits would be to do one of two things, either not conduct social media searches during the hiring process, which of course is the most conservative approach, or use someone other than the interviewer, such as a human resources professional, to conduct social media screening and ensure that that person only passes lawful information to the interviewer. So basically separate the decision maker from the person who is uh, doing the social media screening and then uh, vest 
responsibility in the social media screener with determining whether certain information is lawful and relevant to the actual hiring process. Now, of course, that doesn't address the issue of the concept of having a distinct company culture. Many startups and smaller businesses do pride themselves on having a distinct company culture and finding the right fit with employees can be as important as finding somebody with the right resume. So basically, in cases like that, foregoing social media training probably is not feasible. And as a result, um, we see that uh, startups that conduct social media searches can protect against potential discrimination claims by training their hiring managers to comply not only with background checking rules, but also anti-discrimination and lawful off-duty conduct laws, password protection laws, and also by engaging in lawful interview practices. There are a lot of things that go into the hiring a little bit beyond the scope of this presentation, but I would say, again, it gets back to the concept of an employer that thinks carefully about its processes and procedures, implements written procedures, and perhaps develops checklists that employees or personnel can follow as they engage in the hiring and recruiting behaviors. All right, so moving on, um, I don't want to give you a long lesson on discrimination, but in essence, um, the reason why we are focused on background checks and discrimination is the concept of disparity. Discrimination falls into two categories, and that would be disparate treatment discrimination and disparate impact discrimination. Disparate treatment discrimination occurs when an employer um, applies a practice or policy differently to individuals based on their protected class. Disparate impact discrimination occurs when a neutral policy or practice has the effect of disproportionately screening out individuals due to their protected class and the employer fails to demonstrate that the policy or practice is job-related and consistent with business necessity. And it is this type of neutral policy or practice that the EEOC attempts to deal with um, in its guidance on the use of criminal records. Now, many of you are well aware of this guidance. It's been out there now for, oh, almost seven years, looking at the date here. Um, but in April of 2012, the EEOC issued the enforcement guidance on the consideration of arrest and conviction records in employment decisions under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And uh, the focus here really is on race and national origin discrimination because the EEOC takes the position that African Americans and Hispanics are arrested and convicted in disproportionate numbers to whites and to other non-African American or Hispanic minorities. And so the guidance itself provides best practices on how to use criminal background checks without violating Title VII. Now, this guidance does not carry the weight of law, um, and it is not the product of formal rulemaking. However, it is a policy statement that reflects a long-held EEOC policy and philosophy, and it identifies conduct the EEOC considers to be suspect under Title VII. As a result, the EEOC will typically attempt to enforce this guidance um, via discrimination allegations um, or the attempt to resolve the matter uh, offline with an employer. Either way, there are several key points to this guidance, and I'm going to run through them briefly uh, because we're going to talk about some of the 
methods that the EEOC asks employers to adopt as well. The key points really are to consider criminal convictions that are job-related and consistent with business necessity, meaning look at the nature of the job, look at the nature of the conviction, and determine whether the nature of the conviction would adversely affect performance of the job. If you have an individual that's been hit for drunk driving, for example, but that person never drives a vehicle as part of their job, then the question really becomes, is the nature of that conviction relevant to the nature of the job? And would that conviction potentially even have an, an effect on the performance, excuse me, the performance of that job? So in essence, focus on the conduct underlying the conviction rather than the title of the criminal offense. And then once you've determined that something might be um, exclusionary, conduct individual assessments of candidates. Of course, we have to train our managers and supervisors who are involved in the hiring process and the hiring process on how to engage in these individual assessments. But here are some steps to, to, to follow. So some preliminary steps would be to eliminate policies or practices excluding people from employment based on any criminal record. Training is important. Developing a narrowly tailored written policy and procedures for screening criminal records. Identification of essential job requirements and the circumstances under which those jobs are performed. And the review of any applicable federal, state, and local law requirements for a job has the individual actually been precluded from holding this job as a result of their criminal conviction. For example, if an individual has his license suspended, but driving is an essential part of the job, then obviously that individual can't work for you in the job that you're considering him for. Some additional preliminary steps are included here. I think the most important aspect of this slide is um, determining the specific offenses that may demonstrate unfitness for performing specific jobs. And then ultimately, if you record the justification for the policy and the procedures like you might do with the development of a job description, um, you'll be able to support why a particular conviction um, is unsuitable for the individual's ability to perform a job. Some some other additional preliminary steps include, again, training. You're going to see a lot of training throughout my presentations. Um, make sure that when you ask questions about criminal records, you limit inquiries to records for which the exclusion would be job-related for the position in question, and that would be consistent with business necessity as well. And I always suggest that you take a look at your employment documents, applications, job descriptions, advertisements, and of course, your FCRA disclosures and acknowledgements. Take a look at those on a regular basis and think back over the course of the prior six or 12 months. What has changed? If anything has changed, make sure that your documents are still appropriate. If things have changed and your documents are no longer, appropriately, no longer appropriate, take steps immediately to revise them. Um, with respect to arrest records, employers need to be cautious, of course, as the EEOC counsels. You can't consider the fact that a person was arrested, but you can consider the conduct underlying the arrest. Of course, you have to investigate that conduct, and it can be difficult to do that. There are many reasons for that, but in essence, it's a very difficult area to get into. Um, in essence, though, if 
you find an arrest or you find a conviction, you can develop a targeted screen with respect to that individual. And these targeted screens are typically individualized, although again, you want to apply a consistent formula across the board. Is that conviction job related? Is screening out the candidate consistent with business necessity, i.e., can that candidate perform that job despite the conviction or does that conviction have an impact on the ability to perform the job? The purpose of a targeted screen is really to screen individuals who are convicted of certain types of offenses um, that would ultimately provide an initial determination that they are unqualified for the position, but taking into consideration the nature of that position. And so again, we try to develop a targeted screen that considers the nature of the crime and considers various aspects of the crime involved. So once we've done this consideration, we then move to considering the time elapsed since the time of the crime or the conviction. Did it happen when the individual was young? Did it happen or over seven years ago? What has changed in that individual's uh, time frame? A blanket policy that automatically screens out an applicant without regard to the time that has elapsed can be inconsistent with business necessity. Similarly, consider the nature of the job, as I've indicated earlier. Look at the job duties. So if you have data entry or security, lifting boxes or childcare worker, try to assess whether that conviction is actually relevant to those job duties. Look at those essential functions. Look at the circumstances under which the job is performed and look at the environment in which the job is performed. In essence, like the time that has elapsed, linking the criminal conviction to the essential functions of the position in question may help in determining whether screening out the applicant is job related and consistent with business necessity. So the individualized assessment um, needs to occur where a candidate has been identified by the targeted screen as someone who could be screened out of, a qualify, of qualifying for a job. In essence, then, you do the individualized assessment to determine if additional information might warrant an exception to exclusion from employment. And here again, we take some steps. We provide notice to the candidate that they may be screened out because of criminal conviction. And we give them the opportunity to demonstrate that exclusion from the job should not apply because of his or her particular circumstances. There are many reasons why an individual may feel that they should not be excluded and you need to provide them with the opportunity to discuss this with you. In essence, you have to keep an open mind and not simply write an individual off because of something that occurred in the past. Um, step two continued is that um, the individual will provide you with additional information um, again, the length and consistency of employment history before and after the offense, whether that person has actually performed the same type of work post-conviction with another employer without incident, whether there have been rehabilitation efforts, which are not necessary in all cases, and then any other type of character or employment references that you can find. Certainly, if an individual is already bonded under a federal, state, or local bonding program, that's a pretty good sign that they are acceptable um, despite their conviction. And then step three, um, once you've received all this additional information from the applicant, does it warrant an exception to the exclusion from employment? These are questions that you need to ask yourself 
and handle appropriately. Um, and again, it's important to be consistent across the, the board with respect to how you handle uh, criminal convictions. You can't just write people off based on their race, national origin, sex, age, etc. So the targeted screen procedures that we just talked about do not apply where an employer is subject to federal statutory or regulatory requirements that prohibit individuals with certain types of criminal records from holding positions. They don't apply where federal statutes or regulations prohibit individuals with such convictions from holding occupational licenses, and they don't apply where the criminal record results in denial of federal security clearances required for a job. These targeted screen procedures do apply, however, where employers are subject to state statutory or regulatory requirements that prohibit individuals with certain criminal records from holding uh, particular positions, and they do apply where the regulations prohibit um, the aspect of holding a certain occupational license. In essence, the EEOC says that federal law preempts state law on this issue, and of course that creates quite an interesting runaround since there are probably more than 40 state laws that deal with the concept of criminal convictions and um, in the hiring process. So it's important, again, to learn which ones apply to you and then determine whether the EEOC's approach to screening and um, targeted selection and so forth, whether any of these things um, can apply in your situation to enable you to go, go forward with hiring an individual or at least consider them further. Um, employers should always consider the risks, um, all of the factors that go into the targeted screen, the nature of the job, the job's essential functions, the nature of the crime, consider safety and security concerns, consider employer liability concerns, and then the EEOC suggests that employers refer to the U.S. Government Office of Personnel Management Regulations on determining suitability for federal employment as a good example of how to go about um, making these decisions. So I would say that every time you make an individualized assessment, you need to create a record of the justification for the decision. That's your record-keeping obligation. Keep track of not only the foundation for why a decision had to be made, but what that decision was, and then the documents that demonstrate the whole process of making that decision, including consultations and conferences held in relation to the assessment. Other considerations include confidentiality and information about all applicants and employees' criminal records should be kept confidential and used only for the purpose gathered. Remember that compliance with the Fair Credit Reporting Act and in some cases the Bankruptcy Act is required. And then, of course, we have compliance with state and local law. And most states have their own statutes, as I indicated, relating to arrest and conviction records and criminal background investigations. So take care to ensure that you're familiar with the laws of your locales. And if you maintain facilities and engage in hiring practices in multiple states and municipalities, you need to make some decisions about how you go about using your employment documentation. Do you take it down to the lowest common denominator, or do you uh, tailor it to each jurisdiction? Right, so here we are with state and local laws. 
And in essence, numerous states have enacted various laws limiting or prohibiting use of applicants and employees' information. Most of you have heard of the ban the box laws. Um, there, are, there are an array of criminal history laws. There are laws that prevent employers from accessing expunged records. There are laws that prohibit access to or even requesting credit information despite the um, Fair Credit Reporting Act. Um, some states do not permit employers to actually seek uh, credit information or otherwise use it in the application and consideration process. And of course, salary history has become one of the big issues here. So let's talk very briefly first about ban the box. Um, ban the box laws have typically um, uh, come into their own in the last 20 years or so. And in essence, that simply is about not requiring specific criminal history boxes on employment applications. In essence, it, um, is a, it's a topic that has been picked up, the torch has been picked up by multiple states and multiple municipalities, and it do, does comport with the EEOC's guidance, and it really relates to whether employers are permitted to ask employees, or applicants, excuse me, whether you're permitted to ask an applicant on your employment application whether they have ever been convicted of a criminal act. Um, so in essence, these ban the box laws um, require employers to consider the individual without access to or knowledge of their criminal history. But once they have ultimately made the decision of whether to move forward with the applicant, um, whether it's through an interview or a second um, round of interviews, at some point under each of these laws, the employer is entitled to ask questions about criminal convictions. And so, as I said earlier, um, each law is going to have very specific points in the employment process where an employer is permitted to ask about these criminal histories. And um, in many cases, it's after selection for interview. For example, in Illinois and Minnesota, um, you can inquire about criminal backgrounds after selection for interview. In New Jersey and Oregon, you can only inquire about criminal backgrounds after the first interview, um, and if there has been no interview, then after a conditional offer. Um, in Connecticut, Washington, and Vermont, you can only make these inquiries after the applicant has been determined qualified for the position. Um, in California, Hawaii, and the District of Columbia, it's only after a conditional offer. Um, and then in Massachusetts and Rhode Island, it's either during or after the first interview. So in essence, uh, and there are numerous other ones, and my point really in talking about this is that there are many different points that apply under each of these ban-the-box laws. Some of them are, again, after selection for interview. Some of them arise after the applicant is determined to be qualified for the position. Some of them are during or after a first interview. Some of them are after a conditional offer has been made. Some of them are after the initial screening of applications to eliminate unqualified applicants. Some are after selection for interview or during or after the first interview. Again, we've got numerous different restrictions and an employer that um, engages in employment actions among any of the states or municipalities. And I really am hard pressed to tell you, it looks to me like there are about 12 states and 17 localities um, right now that I have in front of me. 
but I suspect that uh, as of January 1st, there were actually more than that because a number of states had laws that went into effect on January 1st. So be very careful of this, and I think hearkening back to the EEOC's approach to dealing with arrests and um, convictions is really um, actually a good way to determine whether somebody is qualified for the position um, and avoid using the criminal background um, in what sometimes turns out to be um, dis a disparately impactful way. Again, avoiding disparate impact based on a neutral policy that tends to screen out uh, specific protected classes. The other um, one I want to talk about here, apart from credit information, again, I can't emphasize enough that some states prohibit even asking for credit information, and that is a violation in itself. Um, it's important to know that. There aren't many of them out there yet, but they are growing in number, um, particularly in the Northeast um, and California, of course. Um, the one I want to discuss the most, though, is salary history bans. In essence, <laughs> many employers ask about an applicant's past compensation in an attempt to assess what that person's market value is. However, pay equity has become a priority in many states and localities, and as a result, wage gap initiatives such as salary history bans are being passed in SCADs in an effort to close the gap. Salary history bans basically are referred to as pay or wage history bans, and they prohibit employers from making pre-employment inquiries about an applicant's past salary, benefits, or other compensation. They also prohibit employers from considering salary information when making interview, hiring, or compensation decisions. In essence, the goal of these laws is to ensure that compensation is based on job-relevant criteria, such as qualifications, duties, and responsibilities, and also market factors do focus on that as well. Proponents of salary history bans argue that using past compensation in future employment decisions perpetuates existing pay disparities among women and minorities. Um, folks that don't appreciate salary history bans um, argue that using those bans uh, prevents an individual from actually being able to uh, make what the employer is willing to pay because an employer is typically going to ask instead, what are your salary requirements? And as a result, an individual is going to find a way either to damage themselves by saying a too low salary requirement where an employer might have been willing to pay more, or again, by saying what their salary demands are. They might pull themselves out of the running because the employer is not willing to make that payment. Either way, um, the fact is, is that we are not supposed to be asking about past salary anymore because the concept is that uh, women and minorities have been traditionally paid at lower rates than non-women and non-minorities and ultimately um, perpetuating those lower levels um, is a permissive act because the individual basically is willing to work for that. So why wouldn't they be willing to work for a new employer at the same rate, potentially a little bit higher? All right, so in essence, employers in locations with um, Oh, significant uh, issues like this, such as New York, California, and Massachusetts, are going to have to comply with salary history bans at multiple levels. And um, again, like the criminal history um, laws, specific provisions vary. 
and uh, they generally restrict employers from using salary history information to screen applicants, to set comp levels for a particular applicant or position, or to make hiring decisions. Some of these bans go further, and they expressly prohibit using an individual's history to justify a pay disparity or retaliating against an applicant for refusing to disclose their salary history. Of course, most laws do carve out some exceptions, and to varying degrees, salary history bans can allow employers to rely on an applicant's voluntary disclosure of salary history information um, and allow employers to inquire about salary history if the disclosure is otherwise required by law. And ultimately, after an offer that includes compensation levels has been made, and in some cases accepted, um, an individual employer is permitted to confirm an applicant's salary history, but only after that offer has been made, um, and that offer includes compensation. So there is a lot there with salary history and discrimination, um, but I would say that an employer that has facilities in multiple locations is going to have to develop employment practices in accordance with each jurisdiction or cull its current practices down to the lowest common denominator among the relevant jurisdictions. Um, and I've indicated that some of these goals do include leveling the playing field for all employment seekers, providing equal employment opportunity, and breaking the cycle of discrimination and poverty that has afflicted women and minorities um, traditionally. Um, so let's quickly move into some employer best practices. I've identified 10 employer best practices. We've typically already discussed them, um, but I'm going to review them again. So I'm going to run through them. Basically, the first one is understand whether background checks are required by law, by industry standard, or by your own decision for business reasons. The second is to determine the appropriate nature and scope of the background check. And the third is to follow the EEOC guidance to the extent possible when using criminal records. Where the FCRA applies to you, then ensure that you comply with all of the FCRA requirements for consumer and investigative consumer report disclosures and acknowledgements, as well as the adverse action notices, including both pre-adverse action and post-adverse action requirements. The next one is identify and comply with state and local laws, such as ban the box, salary history, credit history, etc. Again, if you are in a new locale for yourself, or if you are even in a locale that um, tends to be activist, make sure that you do at least an annual review of that locale to determine whether um, a new regulation, ordinance, or statute has been passed that impacts you. Some additional best practices include to implement written background check procedures that provide clear guidance on specific elements for each type of position and at specific points in the process. This means that you have to spend some time understanding what your business needs with respect to written background check procedures. You have to think about who is performing these procedures and then provide them not only with a how-to guidance with the specific legal elements, but also deal with things that happen in the process. What if an individual asks a certain question? What if an individual comes back with a request? What if this happens? What if that happens? Make sure that your guidances 
not only provide strict, straight black and white procedures, but also the variances in the tangents that often occur in human resources. Um, create checklists for personnel to use. Make sure that those checklists are used consistently. Checklists are wonderful. I use them in my own practice. Um, they help you to avoid forgetting to do things or failing to do things or doing things more than once, um, but they remind you of all of the different elements uh, that need to go into each and everything that you're doing in the hiring process. Um, another thing is to develop procedures regarding the use of social media in the hiring process. As I indicated earlier, it is useful to try to separate the actual decision maker from the individual who is doing the social media research so that the decision maker cannot be attributed with knowledge of the individual applicant's race or sexual orientation or religion or whatever protected class might actually be apparent from social media. Make sure that your social media uh, reviewers are charged with identifying only relevant information that is communicated to the decision maker. Um, so they also need to be trained as to discrimination laws and what information is and is not acceptable in the decision-making process. Some additional best practices, of course, back to training. Train your managers and other personnel involved in the hiring process on all laws applicable to background checks in your locality, whether it's federal, state, or local. And then implement reasonable steps to prevent unauthorized access to and use of background check information. Typically, we recommend that you destroy background check information. Um, I typically will say hang on to it for the, the length of a statute of limitations on a failure to hire charge. And that, again, can um, vary from state to state. Under discrimination law, you've got your exhaustion uh, requirements before the administrative agencies. Um, but if we're talking about other forms of denial, then we look at the um, length of the statute of limitations for a contract um, cause of action and so forth. So I would say uh, consult with counsel to determine how long you should keep the background to check information if it justifies your decision either to not hire somebody or to take another adverse action against them. So some of my favorite things are mantras, and these are my favorite mantras with respect to background checks. Do not request information if you are not going to use it. There is no need for that information. If you don't have a reasonable use for it, do not request it, do not take access to it, do not keep it. Um, again, training. Train your relevant personnel on a regular basis. Even if they think they know everything, it's good to have refreshers. Do it regularly. It doesn't have to be annually if you don't have turnover, but make sure that you train them. Create forms. Make sure that they are compliant with the law, particularly with the FCRA. Use those, those forms consistently. And then again, keep them up to date. Things change. Regulations change. Um, uh, courts change the law, and we ultimately, as employers, need to uh, update and upgrade every so often. Create checklists to decrease the opportunity for failure. Follow those checklists consistently and make sure that there is a checklist generated for each action. So each action, um, i.e. each applicant for employment, should have its own checklist attached to it. Again, decrease the opportunity for failure by acting consistently and in a structured fashion. And then finally, document, document, document. 
And that concludes my presentation. And um, Catherine, I wonder if there are any questions for us today. Uh, yes, I do have a few questions. And that was so informative. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. Um, so the first question, with respect to salary history bans, let's say we're willing to pay a position in the range of between 40 and 50,000 or some other range, depending on experience or other qualifications. If we can't ask a candidate about his or her salary history, how can we avoid wasting time on applicants who would have been excluded from consideration if we had known how high their salary expectations were up front? Well, that's a good question, and it's one that a lot of employers asked almost immediately after the salary ban um, laws started populating our country. But in essence, nothing prevents an employer from asking an applicant, what are your salary requirements? It doesn't, the question isn't, what did you make before coming here? The question is, what do you need in order to come here? And in essence, if an employee or an applicant um, suggests a number that is too high, then the employer can decide whether to take further action as to that individual. I think it's oh. a pretty simple, but it's a pretty simple uh, response. Just ask them what they need. Okay. All right. That's a okay. That's a great response. <laughs> Salary requirement. Okay. Of course. All right. Um, our next question is: How should an employer with facilities in multiple states handle background check issues in view of a wide, uh, wide variations and disparities among the states with salary history bans and credit checks, criminal record bans, and the like. I know you covered that recently, but I didn't know if you could just cover that again um, briefly. Sure. I'll summarize it, really. Um, many employers do try to adapt their processes to each state or locality in which they recruit and hire. Um, and that really does create quite a bit of work on the part of that employer. On the other side of the coin, many others simply eliminate these concepts from the initial application procedures, and then they follow up with these explorations after they've interviewed a candidate and reached a point in the process where some of these concepts may be explored. However, I think it really does beg the question for an employer, um, do you need to know the information up front and is it going to be important to you as you move forward with applicants? Do you have that many applicants um, that you have to screen? Or can you live without that information until after individuals have been screened and some initial decisions about uh, whether to move forward with those applicants has been made? Um, I would say, as I indicated, that um, some employers basically dumb it down to the lowest common denominator among all of the jurisdictions. Um, or eliminate these inquiries altogether, but other employers who need information on more of an upfront basis attempt to tailor their practices and procedures to each jurisdiction or locale in which they recruit. And it really does depend on what the employer determines that it needs from its um, recruitment and hiring practices. Okay, great. Um, Catherine, by the way, uh, could you also um, move to the next screen, possibly, so that we could see while we're talking? Good, great, perfect, so that we oh, can my, have your contact information. <laughs> great, so that um, our, our attendees can have that. Um, great. Okay, so the next question. Our 
company does background and reference checking internally. How can we handle things that come up about a candidate in social media, such as their race, religious affiliation, age, sexual orientation, and other protected characteristics? What if a candidate looks good in the background check, but engages in unacceptable behavior caught on social media? Well, I think that, um, as, as we discussed, employees who are engaged in background and reference checking have to be thoroughly trained on employer do's and don'ts with respect to hiring and interviewing. I think it's important to separate, as I said earlier, let's separate our social media reviewers from our actual decision makers because by separating the people that actually have obtained this type of knowledge from social media and putting the burden on them of determining how best to protect that information while relaying relevant information to the inter interviewer or decision maker, um, if we train them appropriately, I think that um, they can become human resources specialists in their own right. But in essence, I would say that the initial decision about a candidate should not be tainted by the knowledge of their protected characteristics. And um, there's some examples for um, for a social media reviewer. Let's say they have caught um, an individual who happens to be a minority on a social media site, and that individual is engaging in what appears to be child abuse um, and possibly elder abuse. Let's say there's a YouTube video, How to Spank Your Child Without Leaving a Mark. Um, I just made that up, by the way. Um, the point really there is that would impact on the ability of that person to perform their job if they were being hired for um, daycare or teaching or healthcare or any other number of uh, types of jobs. And so the social media reviewer would be permitted to provide that information to the actual decision maker, even if that information um, also it ends up providing some tainted information like the individual's background. So I think a lot of it really is a judgment call on the part of the social media reviewer, which again is why you really want to train those individuals on the regular equal employment opportunity issues um, in addition to training the actual interviewers and decision makers. So it can be a sticky little issue, but I don't think it's an insurmountable problem. Okay. All right, uh, and the uh, we have another question here. Um, we are a healthcare provider having a tough time finding candidates without criminal histories. Do you have any idea, any ideas that could help us recruit more candidates? Okay, well, that's a really good question, and there's quite a bit of information available on this. Um, recall that the purpose of the EEOC's guidance is to attempt to level the playing field um, similarly, the purpose of, you know, prohibition of uh, the ban the box prohibitions and some of the other uh, background history information, all of that is an attempt to level the playing field for folks who have records um, and to enable an employer to consider whether their current standards can be relaxed to accommodate individuals with criminal records. There may be mitigating circumstances. And also, um, the individual, uh, again, these mitigating circumstances uh, might be that the individual committed the crime when they were you know, 15 and now they're 45. 
Um, perhaps they um, were homeless at the time and, you know, stealing something was the only way they could get by. But now they're, you know, 30 years later, um, that theft or robbery charge is irrelevant. Uh, there's all kinds of issues that an individual can discuss with respect to mitigation. And I think that um, if we can open our minds with respect to the types of crimes that have occurred and match up individuals with the types of jobs that they are being considered for, you might be able to get around some of these issues. Um, I recently read a really interesting, um, some interesting material. Um, it's called A Healthcare Employer Guide to Hiring People with Arrest and Conviction Records, Seizing the Opportunity to Tap a Large Diverse Workforce. And it's issued by the National Employment Law Project and the SAFER, S-A-F-E-R, Foundation. And I recommend that to any healthcare employers that are looking to increase the applicant pool and are running into this problem. It provides some very thoughtful uh, discussion and it provides numerous examples of other healthcare organizations that have been able to move through this issue and have ended up hiring fantastic employees despite their background checks. Um, anybody who would like this, I will be happy to send that link. Um, but it's a really interesting and thoughtful um, material, and I do recommend it to individual uh, employers who are seeking um, guidance, really, in how to go about doing this in a more thoughtful and, um, I'd say, consistent and productive manner. Wonderful. Great. Thank you. And thanks for the uh, information on that link. Appreciate that. Uh, do you have any other words of advice or anything um, as we wrap up? Oh, I would just say let's hearken back to that last slide on my mantras. Uh, make sure you know the law. <laughs> make sure you uh, document everything and make sure that you train your people because it's your front lines. Your human resources people are your front lines um, for defense of you, the employer, and ultimately the decisions that they make and the actions that they take are the ones that will either uh, result in a claim of discrimination or protect you from claims. So good luck to everybody. Be safe out there. Wonderful. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Catherine. And look forward to, um, to having you back soon. And um, attendees, please use the contact information on your screen if you need to contact Catherine. Um, if you have any other questions, please uh, send them. You can send them directly to Catherine or you can send them to, um, to me. Um, you'll have my information. Uh, it's, uh, my email will show up there at, on the screen. Uh, and we'll uh, forward that information on. Um, please remember that your PACOM and your PMI CEU certificate will be emailed to you from within two days following the broadcast. There's no need to request it. Also, um, you can have a, a PDF of the, the slides here. Uh, don't forget that the button is right here on the screen on the, on the side. You can click that and download that um, on the bottom right-hand side of the screen. Uh, you can register for future webinars or request a demo of our compliance solution on our website at firsthcc.com or call us at 888-543-4778.
and thank you for joining us.